Good morning, everyone. Hope you're all uh, awake, and, and we'll stay that way for the next 40 minutes. <laughs> Glad you're here, and you're watching online. Glad you're doing that as well. Um, and down at F3, glad you're, uh, you're sticking around down there as well. So, <clears throat> another financial crisis uh, huh? hitting this country um, due to, what, bad national governance, um, bad corporate governance. Um, it happens, right? Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's not new. Uh, a little over 100 years ago, there was um, um, a bank panic. It was called the, the, the Bank Panic of 1907. I don't think anybody here was there at that time, but uh, it was a typical um, bad decisions that were being made, uh, a frenzy run on the bank, uh, on banks, and it really, um, you can read about it, it really rocked uh, a large segment of this, uh, of this country. And if J.P. Morgan and some uh, other Wall Street high finance bankers had not stepped in and lent money, uh, who knows what would have happened to this country. Uh, it was pretty serious stuff. And it reverberated uh, across the nation, even as far as a place called Bisbee, Arizona. Bisbee, Arizona. So what, what was happening in Bisbee, Arizona? Well, there were copper mines there. And uh, the workers on these copper mines were already underpaid, and the working conditions weren't good. And then this banking crisis hit, and uh, it even got worse um, financially for the workers. And so they unionized. They got together and said, we've got to put some pressure on the copper mining companies and they did, and the copper mining management fought back, and they said, here's what the deal is. You either continue to work with us at the lower wages and the bad working conditions, or you can hit the road, Jack. You can find another job. And uh, one of the workers there at those copper mines said, um, we have found ourselves between a rock and a... Yeah, the rock was the actual quarry where they were working, and the hard place was unemployment and uh, certain financial uncertainties in a country that was going through a bank panic. We are caught between a rock and a hard place. Now that phrase ended up taking root. The newspapers picked up on it. By uh, 10 year, 20 years later, during the Great Depression, it was all over uh, being used uh, for people who continually found themselves between a rock and a hard place. Um, now, I'm sure we've all been there at some point or another, between a rock and a hard place, between two undesirable options. Um, what if the rock was actually God himself, caught between something God was calling us to and uh, unfavorable implications of that? That is exactly where Peter found himself in Acts chapter 10 and chapter 11. We're studying through the book of Acts, and uh, we've been in Acts chapter 10 last week. We're going to look at a little bit of Acts chapter 11, but I want you to take your Bibles. Let's go back to Acts chapter 10 because there's some things I want to pick up with from there from last week. <clears throat> so let's familiarize ourselves with Acts chapter 10. I'm going to read here from the New American Standard Version. Uh, Acts chapter 10, verse 1, and it says this, Now, there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort. And um, as we saw from last week, this chapter 10 focuses on two men, and their two visions, but the one God who brought them both together. The first one here is Cornelius. He's a centurion. Uh, that is, he was uh, head of a, uh, of a cadre of soldiers, of a hundred soldiers, a centurion. That was part of, it says, of, a, of the Italian cohort or regiment. A cohort was about 600 soldiers, so he was in charge of one-sixth of a cohort. And ten cohorts brought together was a Roman legion, 6,000 soldiers. And he was stationed in Caesarea, a very significant city, uh, Romanized by Herod the Great who built it up. We saw that last week. 
Well, verse 2 says he was also a devout man, one who feared God with all his household. He gave uh, many alms to the Jewish people, prayed to God continually. At about the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, and fixed his gaze on him and being uh, much alarmed. He said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now, dispatch some men to Joppa, send for a man named Simon, who's also called Peter. He's staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were of his personal attendants. And after he'd explained everything to them, he sent them off to Joppa, which is about 30 33 miles uh, south of Caesarea. Okay, that's the first guy. Here's the second guy, verse 9. On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter. Peter went up to the housetop about the sixth hour, that's about noon, to pray, and he became hungry, and he was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And he saw the sky opened up, and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and, and crawly creatures of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice came and said to him, <clears throat> Get up, kill it, and eat. And Peter, being the good Jewish boy that he was, said, By no means, absolutely not, Lord, for I've never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Good Jewish boy, he was following uh, after the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, that had all the food restrictions, the dietary restrictions, and Peter saw some of those unclean animals, like probably a nice fat pig in the sheet, and he said, no way am I going to eat what I should not eat. Well, verse 15, again, a voice came to him a second time. It says, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. And then it happened a third time, verse 16, and then the object was taken back up into the sky. Well, verse 17, now while Peter was greatly perplexed in his mind as to what this vision was all about, what he had seen, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. And calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was also called Peter, was staying there. And while Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you, so get up, go downstairs, accompany them without misgivings without any doubting in your mind, for I have sent them myself. Verse 21, well, Peter went down to the men and he said, Behold, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for which you've come? And they explained to him that Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you, to come to his house and hear a message from you. And so he invited them in, gave them lodging, and the next day they got up and they went away. He went away with them. He took some of the brethren from Joppa to accompany him. And so they go the 33 miles up to Caesarea. <clears throat> the following day he entered Caesarea, and there was Cornelius waiting for them. And he had called together his relatives and his close friends. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him, fell at his feet, and worshipped him. But Peter raised him up and said, stand up, I'm just a man like you too. And as he talked with him, he entered and found that where many people were assembled. So there's the scene. Uh, Cornelius, the Roman centurion, his friends, relatives, who know was all in this room. Peter walks in, there they are, they're waiting for a message because the angel had said, get Peter, he's got something to tell you. And so he said to them, verse 28, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit with him. Yeah, that, that, that just didn't happen, as we saw last week. Never the two would meet. The Jews, the Gentiles, no way. The Jews were God's chosen people. The Gentiles, any non-Jew, they were Gentile dogs. There was to be a, 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 a strict line of demarcation between them. In fact, even in, the, in Jerusalem, in the temple uh, mount, there was a, a strict... Uh, uh, separation between Gentiles and Jews. Uh, G- Gentiles could get so, only so close uh, to that temple building. And yet Peter said, God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean, and that is why I came. 
without even raising any objection when I was sent. For you, uh, sent. So I ask, for what reason have you sent for me? And then Cornelius explains, well, four days ago to this hour, I was praying in my house during the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in shining garments. And he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard. Your alms have been remembered before God. Therefore, send to Joppa, invite Simon, who's also called Peter, to come to you. He is staying at the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and you've been kind enough to come. Now then, we are all here. I listened, you heard, you came, we're here in the presence of, the, of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. And it's at that point, verse 34, very important phrase, and opening his mouth, Peter said, and that little idiom phrase, opening his mouth, is a little phrase that would indicate, take notice, listen up, because what is about to come out of this guy's mouth is very, very important. And this is what Peter said. I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. That word that meant to, to lift someone's face, to show favoritism. God is not one to show favoritism to anyone. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all, you yourselves know, verse 37, the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting with Galilee, after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know about Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Well, we are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they also put him to death, hanging him on a cross. But God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. That is, to us, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. See, Peter's doing exactly what Jesus has told him to do. Go into the world, you know, be my witnesses, proclaim uh, the good news about me. And that's what Peter's doing. We saw Jesus. We walked with him. We saw him being arrested. We were there. He hung on a cross. He died by Roman crucifixion. He was raised again on the third day. We were there. We saw it. We ate with him. We drank with him. This is not a figment of our imagination. We are witnesses to these facts. He is alive. And he has ordered us, verse 42, to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who's been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. And of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. That was Peter's message. Now, I made a bunch of observations last week. Let me just mention and, and reiterate four things here that, again, are very important in this passage. The first one has to do with the fact that God orchestrated all this. It wasn't like Peter's idea to get up one morning and say, you know what, I think I'm going to go to the Gentiles. There's some guy up there in Caesarea, Centurion, I'm going to start with him. No, Peter had to be taken, you know, dragging and screaming in a way, a vision and go eat, and three times he had to be convinced of this. No, this was a sovereign God, the God of heaven, who was orchestrating these events. God was actively engaged in this, from start to finish, this is his do, uh, doings, this is his story, God's hand was all over it. Second thing I want to bring out from this passage, Cornelius was a squeaky clean Gentile. I mean, this guy, all but being circumcised, uh, he was not a proselyte to, to uh, Judaism, but he was everything but that. He gave alms to the poor, he prayed continually, it says. He was a God-fearer. He was a very devout religious man. But if he were to die, he wouldn't make it to heaven because he didn't have eternal life. He was squeaky clean, religiously, humanly speaking, but he didn't know Jesus. There was something missing in his soul, and I think he knew it. Um, I think he was, he was driven in his, in his 
in his uh, religion, in, in, in his pursuit of God. There was something missing. And he saw Judaism. He, he read the Old Testament. He was well-versed in the Jehovah God of the Old Testament. He'd embraced it, in fact, but he, he knew no peace. He was a man on a mission, as it were, to fill the, the hole in his soul, and he needed not more religion, but he needed a personal relationship with the living God through his son Jesus. Um, you know, when we think about it, the, the previous chapter, uh, chapter 9, was Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus that we studied that in, in uh, Acts chapter 9. Saul was a, he, he, yes, he was, he was a Jewish leader. He was rising star in Judaism, but he was a vile guy, right? He was out there uh, breathing threats, trying to find these Christians. He was, he was killing people, putting them in prison, r- ripping families apart. He was, he, was, he, was a, he was one bad guy. And it, it's almost as if it, it's like, if, if you look at, at Saul's life, the most vile sinner could have hope. Because if Saul, he himself later would say, I'm the chief of sinners. If Saul could come to know Jesus and have his life changed, there's hope for anybody. And here now in chapter 10, you've got the most squeaky clean person of the, of the lot. Cornelius, God-fearer, he gives money, he's, he's praying continually. He is a deeply devout, God-fearing man. And I think in that example, even to the most holy and righteous and squeaky clean, religiously speaking person, they need Jesus. So here are these two stories of these two men back to back in this passage. Here's the third thing, that observation from this passage. God tells Peter to go to Caesarea. Um, It reminds me of the Great Commission. Go and make disciples. He didn't just stay hunkered down in Joppa and have Cornelius and his family come to him. Hey, look, if they want to find about Jesus, if they, want to know, they, they know where I live. They can, they can come here. No, God sent him to Caesarea. He sent him to Cornelius. Because that's God's way of doing things. Go into the world and make disciples. Uh, don't wait for them to come to you. Go to them. It's a third observation. Here's a fourth one, and it's right there again in verse 43, 34 to 43. Peter opened his mouth. The content of what he shared, we talked about this last week, the content of what he shared centered around whom? Jesus. That he died and he rose again. And that whoever, it says, Peter says, believes in him has forgiveness of sins. Jesus died and he rose again, and whoever believes in him has forgiveness of sins. The point being, there's one way to have eternal life. There's one way to have a right relationship with the Holy God. There's one way to get to heaven, and it's through Jesus Christ. And nothing we do matters. Here was Cornelius, again, Praying, giving alms, religious, devout, a God-fearer. There's one thing he lacked. None of that would matter. He needed to put his faith in Jesus Christ, that Jesus died and rose again. That's it. And that's repeated in the New Testament. There's a, there's, there's a, well, we've talked about this many times. There's one book in the New Testament that was written as a gospel track, written for the express purpose of telling people who were on their way to hell, how to get on the way to heaven, how to have eternal life. One book that specifically is targeting unsaved people. That's the Gospel of John. And 98 times in John's Gospel, the word believe or faith is used. God so loved the world, John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him, Jesus died, he paid for our sins, he rose again on the third day, That is the good news about Jesus. And when we put our faith and trust in him, that he paid for our sins, he died, he rose again. He was victorious. He is the only Savior. And when we put our trust in him and simply believe in him, 
transfer our trust off of ourselves, off of our devout religiousness, our God-fearingness, the giving of our alms to the poor, or our many, many prayers that ascend to God, put our trust off of that, transfer our faith onto Christ and Him alone, in that moment of faith, the Bible says, a free gift is given to us. It's a gift of eternal life. It is that simple. There's no walk in an aisle, closing our eyes, everybody head bowed, hand raised, who wants to, you know, nobody peeking, close your eyes, you know, none of that. It is by faith in Christ, and that is exactly what Peter is saying. Whoever believes in him will have their sins forgiven. That is the good news um, of, of, about Jesus. So, Peter proclaims it. He offers this wonderful truth of, of whoever believes in Jesus has eternal life. What happened next? Well, verse 44. We pick up with the story there. Verse 44. And while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon them on all those who were listening to the message. And all the circumcised believers who came with Peter, there were six of them, were amazed because why? The gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. So what happened? Peter is preaching away, sharing his message. You know about Jesus. He, he went about doing good and all these things. And, and, but he said, let me tell you what Jesus did. He hung on a cross. He died. The Lord God raised him up again on the third day. And if you put your faith in him, you have forgiveness of sins. And before he got the next sentence out, while he was speaking, they believed. That's all they needed. If you believe it, you have received it. And they believed it. And the proof of that was, all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit falls upon them. And just like in Acts chapter 2. This is a Gentile Pentecost that takes place. And um, he says, um, verse 47, Then surely no one then can refuse the water for these to be baptized, who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and then they asked him to stay for a few days. Do you notice the order? Peter sets out the invitation. This is Jesus. He died, he rose again. Believe it. They believed it. Proof, the Holy Spirit descends upon them. They are born again followers now of Jesus Christ, and they are immediately publicly proclaiming that in baptism. And then they celebrate it. And, and Peter uh, stays there for a few days. Can you imagine the excitement going on in that house? Here were people in hot pursuit of a God that yet, yet they just couldn't find. They pursued him, they pursued him with all the religious fervor that a man could muster. But there was something missing. The simple truth that God sent his son into the world to pay for your sins. He died, he rose again. And if you believe him, if you just transfer your trust onto him, if you just by faith accept this to be true, you'll have the forgiveness of your sins. You'll have the free gift of eternal life. They believed it. The Spirit of God now comes and indwells them as new believers in Jesus Christ. They're publicly proclaiming in baptism. The party began. The excitement in Cornelius' house must have been overwhelming. The thought that the, that, that the, eternal, the, the issue of eternal life has been settled by this simple act of faith in Jesus Christ. Can you imagine the excitement for Peter? I mean, he went up there to Caesarea with a bit of fear and trepidation. I mean, he took six followers with him uh, to, to just check this thing out. He's breaking every every spiritual Judaistic sensitivity in his body to go up to Caesarea, to Cornelius' house. And he sees before his eyes, while he is still speaking, these people believe and they accept it, and the Spirit of God now comes in and dwells them. The proof of that, it says, they, they begin, he'll see in just a moment, they begin speaking in tongues, that that is an evidence that was a confirming sign in the first century, that this is real, this is true. The excitement, the celebration that must have begun. Exciting time. Until we get to chapter 11, because in chapter 11 we find out that Peter was caught between a rock and a hard place. There were some difficult moments 
that were yet to come when he goes back to Jerusalem and has to tell his buddies what had just happened. So let's keep reading chapter 11. Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised, that is the Jewish people, took issue with him. And they said, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? You get that last phrase? You went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them? Are you kidding me? Peter, tell me it ain't so. This is not what good Jewish boys do. This is forbidden. This is wrong. This should not have happened. You went to Gentiles, Gentile dogs, and you ate with them. Didn't every bone in your body, Peter, scream out, don't do it, Peter. Don't go. Don't go up there because when you get back to Jerusalem, all your Jewish friends, they're going to pounce on you and you've got a lot of explaining to do. Why in the world would you violate the Mosaic law and a good, the good Jewish customs? But then there was God on the other side, the rock, who had told him, go. And don't you call unclean what God has cleansed. This is my work. And the door of the gospel is going to be open to the Gentiles freely. Free grace. Freely. Go do it. Peter, caught between that rock and a hard place, chose the rock. And he went and he obeyed and he did what God wanted him to do. But doesn't discount the fact that now he's standing there with all these other Jewish brethren, the, the other apostles, uh, the, the disciples of Jesus, good Jewish boys too, and um, now he's got to explain it. And that's what he does starting in verse 4. He gives his defense. What is he going to say? Verse 4. But Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them in orderly sequence what was happening. In the following verses, he just recounts what we just read in Acts chapter 10. Verse 5 says, I was in the city of Joppa praying. And, and by the way, isn't that, how, how are you going to argue with that? You know, I, I was praying and, uh, you know, the Spirit of God came and said, told me to do this. Um, um, you know, what, what do you do with somebody who says, yeah, but, you know, the Spirit of God told me to do this. Or I was praying about it and this is the direction God gave him. Um, well, that exactly, though, is what happened. I was praying, and I, I, it was in a trance. I saw a vision, an object coming down like a great sheet lowered by four corners from the sky. It came right down to me, and when I had fixed my gaze on it, I was observing that I saw the four-footed animals of the earth, the wild beasts, the crawling creatures, the birds of the air. And then I heard the voice, verse 7, said, get up, kill, and eat. And, and I said, you know, just hear me out, Jewish brethren. I did say... Three times, by no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. I stood my ground. You know, I don't, don't jump on me here, because three times I refused. But a voice, verse 9, from heaven answered a second time, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. And it happened three times, and then everything was drawn back up into the sky. And verse 11, behold, at that moment, then three men appeared at the house in which we were staying, having been sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, uh, them without any misgivings, without any double-mindedness. Don't debate it, just go. And I took six brethren also with me, and we went and we entered this man's house. And he reported to us, verse 13, how he had seen an angel standing in the house and saying, you know, send a Joppa, have Simon, who's also called Peter, brought here, and he will speak words to you by which you will be saved you and all your household. And as I began to speak, well, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he had upon us from the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how uh, he used to say, John baptized with water, but you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And well, therefore, if God gave to them the same gift that he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in the way of God? What a, what a, what a neat uh, package. Four things, basically, Paul, uh, Peter is saying here. Four things that, that, that uh, he, he wraps his defense around. Here's the first one. 
Look, the vision of God. It was a vision of God that he gave me. I, I wasn't sick in this thing. I was just minding my own business. I was having a little noon lunch, and boom, a vision of God came. Second line of defense. It was the message of God that spoke to him. I saw a vision from God. I heard a message from God. Go with these guys that are coming. Go to Cornelius' house. The third line of argumentation was the circumstances that God had arranged to convince him. He said, I saw a vision of God. I heard a message of God. And I, I couldn't deny the fact that there were circumstances. I mean, I just finished the vision and there's a knock at the door and there they are, three men, just like the Holy Spirit told me. I couldn't arrange that. That was not happenstance. God was orchestrating this. The vision, the message, the circumstances, and the last thing was the presence of the Holy Spirit. That was the final thing that convinced uh, the Apostle Peter. This is real. And so those four pieces of defense he lies out here to his fellow Jewish uh, uh, friends in Jerusalem. How are you going to not deny that? He said, look, what, 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 do you want, what do you want from me? What was I to do? This was a God thing. God was doing this. Who was I to stand in the way of what God was doing? And love verse 18. Verse 18 says, and when they heard this, they, they quieted down which implies, I mean, this was, they were, their, their feathers were ruffled pretty good here. And when they heard Peter's defense, this four-part defense, they quieted down and they glorified God and they concluded, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? God is doing something here. And Peter, you did right. Who are we that we can stand in the way of God? It's a great story because, folks, we wouldn't be here today without Acts 10 11. That door that was opened up to the Gentile world, it, it was right here, and God used Peter to do it. Now, we'll see in the next uh, ensuing chapters that God will use the Apostle Paul to build the church in the Gentile world, but he used the Apostle Peter to open the door to that. God knew what he was doing in his sovereign grace, in his infinite mercy and wisdom. He connected the best of, uh, of, of the Jew with the best of the Gentile world, and they opened the door to the gospel, and these people were saved. And Katie barred the door, because for 2,000 years, there's been a lot of exciting things happen around the world because of this event in Acts 10 and Acts chapter 11. Now, there's some principles here, two of them. In fact, I, I just want to bring out uh, to wrap up, um, just by way of application. Here's the first one, and it's very important. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God will look on the heart. See, why was Peter criticized by the Jews in Jerusalem when he went back? Why was Peter criticized? Because they were looking on the outward appearance. You, you went to the home of Gentiles? They were Gentiles. They were people to be avoided, not people to be rescued from their sin. The outward appearance, these are Gentiles. How often does prejudice or personal favoritism get in the way of, of maybe the gospel being shared, the good news of Jesus being shared to someone who's just really different from us. Um, Jesus taught Peter this back when he walked the earth. Um, in Luke's first volume, volume one, the gospel, Luke wrote both Luke and Acts. In his first volume, in Luke chapter um, five, there's a great story of uh, Jesus meeting um, Matthew or Levi at the tax collector booth. Um, they, um, Jesus was walking by the tax collector booth, and um, it says after he had gone and he noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth, he said to Levi, follow me. And this, this tax collector by the name of Levi or Matthew got up and followed him. And Levi gave a big reception for him, it says in Luke 5, 29, in his own house. 
And it was a great crowd of other tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. And then we read this in Luke chapter 5. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, and they said, well, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, it is not, is it, not those who are, it is not those who are well who need a physician, it's those who are sick. I've come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It's those who are sick who need the doctor. I've come not to call the, the squeaky clean righteous, I've come to call the sinners to repentance. He's eating and drinking with, with tax collectors, with sinners. If you watched the, um, some of you may have watched The Chosen, the series on The Chosen. It's a great scene where, uh, where the, the way they've got Le Le Levi or Matthew uh, kind of configured the, in, in that particular program. But, I mean, Matthew was, he was the scourge of, of Judaism. He was a Jew who was working in cahoots with the Romans, collecting taxes for the Romans against his fellow people. He was a traitor. He was despised. And Jesus has the gall to walk up to him, see him, and say, hey, come follow me. I want you to be one of my disciples. And then, to add insult on injury, Levi invites him to his home with a whole bunch of other tax collectors and sinners, and Jesus goes, and he goes and eats and drinks with them. Of course, the sensitivities of the religious leaders of the day would be, uh, would be deeply uh, um, hurt, would be deeply offended. You're eating with tax collectors and sinners. Why would they say that? Because men look on the outward appearance. What was Jesus seeing? People in need. He looked into, at their heart. One commentator, William Barclay, said this, Jesus wanted the man that no one else wanted. He offered his friendship to the man whom all others would have scorned to be called friend. Because Jesus looked at the heart. That homosexual neighbor or co-worker, how do we view them? From the outside? Or as Jesus would see them? A heart that needs to be brought into a relationship with the Holy God, to be set free from a sinful lifestyle so that they can experience life indeed. Do we look on the outside of a person who's got all those piercings and, and those, those, those demonic images tattooed to his body and head the other way? Or do we see someone for whom Christ died? Is it the outward appearance? Or do we see the heart, the need? You know, our country has a major border crisis on its hands right now, right? Um, and while we need to vote for politicians and and policies that protect this country, the security of our country. But what, what, what would God cause or call his people to do? Maybe, maybe plant some churches that could reach illegal immigrants so that they can come to know Jesus and be discipled and maybe sent back to their country of origin as missionaries to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with other people. Don't look at me so, you know, piously here. I'm trying to get, you know, put some of these thoughts into your head here. How do we stop looking at the outward appearance and, and see people the way Jesus sees people? We can despise that abortion doctor and the evil that he is doing in that industry of, of murder. But... What's the heart need? Would God want us to somehow develop a relationship, shove us into a relationship with a doctor who commits, who does abortions so that we can show the love of Jesus and share the good news of Jesus and he would come to faith, she would come to faith in Christ? I'll never forget, it was 20-some 20, 20 years ago, the ABBA banquet um, that we host every year here, but there was a guy who, uh, from New York, who, he was an abortion doctor. And the, the amazing thing about his story was uh, he would, 
he would do abortions during the day and then go home, and he and his wife weren't able to have kids, and he would go home at night try to find and do searches and research for uh, adopting babies. He's killing babies during the day. He's trying to find a baby to adopt at night. And then one day someone shared Jesus with him. It was through a series of, of relationships and time, but shared Jesus with him. He trusted Christ, and uh, now he saves babies' lives. If, if we're... If we're hell-bent on looking at outward appearances, no Christian would have come close to that guy. Maybe some of you have heard of Rosaria Butterfield. Rosaria Butterfield. She was a, um, a professor, a tenured professor at a liberal arts college up in, uh, uh, I can't remember where it was, maybe Connecticut someplace, but she, was, uh, she taught women's studies and was a raging lesbian, and she hated anything Christian. Uh, but uh, a pastor and his wife in that community reached out to her and looked beyond the outward appearance, beyond her vile rhetoric, and built a relationship with her, led her to Jesus, led her to the Lord. Today she's the, pastor of, uh, she, she's the wife of a pastor down, I think, in North Carolina, and a wonderful ministry that she's reaching out because someone decided not to look on the outward appearance but to see people as God sees people. Um, you know, part of it comes down to sometimes being a man pleaser versus a God pleaser. That's kind of another sub-principle here. We look on the outward appearance, and what that often does is cause us now to be a man pleaser. Peter could have said, oh boy, I've got to go back to Jerusalem and explain to myself, I'm going to play it safe. Forget Caesarea, forget Cornelius. I've got friends in high places back in Jerusalem, and I don't want to suffer the, you know, the inquisition that's coming. Now, Peter did trip up uh, in Galatians chapter 2 when he goes up to Antioch and visits the Apostle Paul. He's fine, you know, eating meat, you know, and pork and stuff like that until a Jewish delegation comes up from Jerusalem, and then he backed away, and if you remember that story, the Apostle Paul has to, you know, confront him on that. Look, this is tough stuff. This isn't easy. But it's godly. Are we looking at the outward appearance? Or do we do what God does and look at the heart? By the way, it works the other way too. In other words, um, we can see someone and think, man, they, they, they've got it all together. They go to church, or ch there's a, they're a deacon at a church or whatnot. They, I mean, they are squeaky clean. Why? They're a shoo-in to get to heaven. So why talk with them about forgiveness of sins and eternal life? You know, it, it works that way too. We look on the outward appearance and they say, oh, well, they're, they're definitely going to heaven. And we know, as in the case of Cornelius, we should all know squeaky clean righteous living doesn't get us into heaven. But trust in Jesus Christ as our personal Savior so go ahead, build that relationship, and go ahead and ask that important question. You know, my friend, if you were to die tonight and stand before God and he were to say, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? And if they give you a list of a lot of good things that they've done, you know for certain sure they're not going to heaven because they're putting their trust in themselves. You look on the outward appearance and make judgment calls. God looks at the heart, and that person needs to put their trust in Christ and Christ alone. Well, here's the second principle. I'm, I'm late here. Here's the second thing to understand. God, it's very simple, right? God uses people to reach people. God delights to use people. That's his plan. Again, he, what a great opportunity. He could have just, there was the angel coming to Cornelius' house, he could have just left it there and had the angel take it from there, right? The angel, he got Cornelius' attention. Just go ahead and use the angel. Why have Peter go up 30-some miles, a, a day's walk, go up there and do that? Why would he do that? Because he uses people to reach people. That's his plan. Someone had said there's two embarrassing questions um, for the average Christian to answer today. Here's the first one. When was the last time you witnessed to someone? Here's the second most embarrassing question. When was the last time you tried? Huh. There's no way around it. God wants to 
send us to others to be open to share the good news. He uses the agency of people telling people. You know, the, the, the first command uh, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry to his disciples was, come, come gather with me, be my disciple, and I'll make you a fisherman. The last thing Jesus commanded his disciples was, go into all the world and make disciples. It was on his heart, proclaiming his, his message to the world. And if you think about it, there's a lot of other better ways, I would think, to communicate the good news other than using us. We're kind of not that dependable at times. Why not go ahead and use the angel? It was perfectly set up. God could use clouds. You know, he could, he could form the clouds of the sky into John 3.16, and people could be walking along and, what? <laughs> the trees could whisper out as the breeze blows, God so loved the world. Share the gospel. A night walk and the chirping of the locusts, of the crickets, could, could, could proclaim the good news of Jesus. God could use anything. He could use nothing. But he desires to use us. God uses people to reach people. And here in Acts 10 and 11, we see that God used a man and broke every Jewish sensitivity bone in his body and shoved him out the door to head up to Caesarea to share with the Gentiles the good news of Jesus. And it forever changed the course of human history. And for 2,000 years, folks, we've been reaping the benefit as the gospel has gone around the world to every tribe and tongue and language, people hearing the good news about Jesus Christ. Last uh, month, one of our missions pastors, Jim Poole, uh, went to Nepal. We work with Gopal up in Nepal and uh, his church and his leadership there. Jim brought his son, Henry, and then Joel McManigle who grew up in this church. Joel is, uh, and his family are in Thailand, ministering in Thailand. So Joel came over from Thailand to Nepal, met Jim uh, in Nepal. And uh, Joel from Thailand brought uh, a villager, a, an upcoming leader in uh, the Pokhorin tribal group in northern Thailand with him. Got the scene? So here's a, a Pokhorin uh, leader from Thailand in the village in Nepal with good old Jim Poole and his son, English speakers. Well, it looked something like this. The first guy is from the Pokhorin tribe, and Joel is speaking English and translates, and then the guy from Nepal listens and understands English, and he translates, well, it's just better to see it. That's the poker in guy. That's the white American. That's Gopal. Is that something? You see, the gospel, as Jesus said to, to Peter in Acts 10, God is no respecter of persons. And the gospel is being shared around the world. We have a privilege here through our missions ministry to, to see it kind of firsthand of what God is doing. And one day, one day as we read in Revelation chapter 7, after these things, John said, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues 
standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands, and they cried out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Glory to God, because people are coming to faith in Christ, and the door got open for the very first time in Acts chapter 10, when Peter obeyed God and did what everything in his body was screaming not to do. He shared the good news with a people and a lot of people who are really different than himself. Let's pray. Our Father, grant us that understanding as well as the, the vision, the burden, the courage to listen to you, to build relationships with people that might be different from us. Give us a heart like you have that would um, see people in their need, the need ultimately of, of a Savior, and look beyond that outward appearance. Um, and Father, and be bold to share the good news that they have a hope, a hope of eternal life, and it's in Jesus. If there's anyone here today, Father, I pray, who has yet to put their trust in Jesus, may they understand it today from this passage of Scripture that you love them, that you've provided a Savior who is Jesus, who died for them and rose again. And by simply transferring their trust unto him and him alone, they have the free gift of eternal life, a message that is going around the world today. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.